so many episodes. 1510, Elise Lonin, author of On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. 9-11 happened. There was a tremendous amount of grief and the country coming together and donating blood. And then the calls became, and the economy, like show your patriotism by going to the mall, literally. And this is a refrain now, right? This was the refrain of COVID. It is our responsibility to stoke this economy and keep it going. Otherwise we'll all suffer and die. And so women are extolled to spend, not extolled to make, but to spend and to be the drivers of this economy as household CEOs. An economy, the etymology is house. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. We are exploring the relationship between the seven deadly sins and the pressures women experience today to be quote unquote good. Our guest is Elise Lonin, the author of a new book called On Our Best Behavior, where she does a deep dive into the history of female evolution, looking at ancient ideas of morality that still control and distort women's lives today. In particular, how we think about money, power, and greed. Elise is a a writer, editor, and podcast host of Pulling the Thread, focused on pulling apart the stories we tell about who we are and then putting those threads back together. She's co-written 12 books, including five New York Times bestsellers. Elise used to be the chief content officer of Goop. There she co-hosted the Goop podcast, the Goop Lab on Netflix, and led the brand's content strategy and programming. Her book, Here's Elise Lonin. Elise Lonin, welcome to So Money. This is such a treat for me because you were generous. You invited me on your uh, podcast when you were at Goop years ago. It was a huge deal for me. That drove so much interest and an audience to my work. And I hope that this podcast, this interview will do the same for you because you've written a very, very important book that I have I have marked up the wazoo. It's called On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price women pay to be good. I love a title that alludes to money. (laughs) You wrote this for me, right? Like you had me in mind as you were writing the subtitle. Exactly. Just you. I was just had you in my mind as the target demo, but no, you really are in many ways, the target demo for this book. Based on my post-it notes, clearly I am. (laughs) So this book is um, really an examination of how womanhood has been depicted in our society, the expectations placed on women, the lens through which you look at these pressures is through the seven deadly sins. So you take us on a journey through sort of biblical times and then also into other cultures and other philosophies to 
tell us essentially why we are the way we are, or why we feel the need to show up in the world as women in a particular way. And like all good stories, this starts with your own, a hyperventilation to be exact. Yes. Take us to that moment in your therapist's office when you had not just a moment of hyperventilation, this was like a 30 day long, it was like a 30 day long cleanse. Uh, we say 30 day long cleanse. It was a 30 day long hyperventilation. <laughs> The opposite of a cleanse. Yeah. I mean, so I, starting in my twenties, started to have these bouts of anxiety. And the first time that I had a hyperventilation episode, I went to the emergency room because I felt like I was going to die and I couldn't take a deep breath, which then creates a sense of panic, as you can imagine. And the reality of them is that your lungs are actually oversaturated with oxygen. There's a disconnect between what's happening in your body and what's happening in your brain. And so you start over breathing to compensate. And it's different than sort of breathing into the paper bag, which I think a lot of people think is a hyperventilation episode. And so I've had this problem really since beginning my working wife, working, working life, <laughs> working life and being out in the world and, and re responsible for my own safety and security. And I've had it on and off. And this particular episode was excruciatingly long. And the thing about hyperventilation is that you appear to the world to be quite calm. You're yawning, you're sleepy, you are placid, you're not excited, but inside it feels like death. And so I was talking to my therapist and I was essentially like, how? I don't understand. I am a high achieving, high performing person. I try to be the best mother I can be. All of these things. I try to be a, a solid wife, et cetera. I cannot outrun this. I don't, I, in my mind, have always held out the possibility that there will be a finish line where I will feel good enough, safe, secure, um, and this breathing will subside. I will feel like I am somehow safe and yet I cannot run it. And that was this revelation for me of what is it? What is this that is sitting on my chest and making me feel so awful? Um, and how am I going to move past this in my life? I, I recognize like I would, I had to face it. Otherwise it would break me. It was certainly taking all of the joy out of living when you spend every day concentrated on whether you're going to breathe or not. And when you can take another yawn. And by the way, you're not even able to yawn. It's like a half yawn because you can't complete the yawn. Yeah. So you, when you, you experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. When you yeah. wrote that, I was like, oh, I, that's happened to me. Yes. And it wasn't a one-time thing. It was a, it was a, it was a sequence of, of events that led up to that. And it was usually, it was during a very stressful time. Take us to your life though. I mean, you're sort of talking about the stress and the overload, yeah. but like, what were you doing at this moment? Yeah. You know, I've always had multiple jobs simultaneously. I, at this point, I was the um, chief content officer at Goop and we were um, releasing a TV show and I would co-host the podcast that you came on. And that was typically two episodes a week. And I have two small kids. I also, I've ghost written or co-written 12 books. 
So I was always doing that on the side for, for extra money. And, um, and so uh, constantly working all so just a few the things. time, just, just, just like a, a few, few things. things. Yeah. And <laughs> these feelings of scarcity and I'll never have enough and I'll never have enough money. And I'm the primary breadwinner. I mean, all things that I know that you relate to and the, your listeners relate to acutely, like it's all on me. And there's some truth to that and there's not truth yeah. to that. Um, but yeah, that was what was, was present for me. And this feeling of like, I have it all under control and yet I don't know how. And obviously I don't because I feel like I'm going to die. And so you, you look into this, you're, you're a natural curious person, you're a journalist. So like me, I would probably just start asking questions, trying to get to the root of it. And you realize this predates you by a lot. We're talking Adam and Eve. And as you're talking, I'm thinking, wow, Elise is now living her life where she's maybe following some of these deadly sins, like the deadly sins to avoid. But at the same time, maybe you're also living a life that is rejecting that. Like the fact that you're a breadwinner. Yeah, no, totally. And that's a, this is a really key distinction is that, I think of myself as sort of a anti-patriarchal woman pushing against all of these structures, right? I have made my life in opposition in some ways to an idea of how I'm supposed to be, including being the primary breadwinner and that being very important to me to reverse my own parents' marriage, thinking that it would offer me some relief. And what I recognized as I was in that car is that this is in me. This is a psychological burden as much as a structural burden. And there is all of this feeling alive in me about not being a good enough mother, not being a good enough woman, et cetera. And that's what I really wanted to address. Like, what is it in me that feels like I'm not good enough? Mm-hmm. And where does that come from? And that's where I, how I ended up at the seven deadly sins. I'm not I wasn't raised in a religious household. I presumed that they were in the Bible. They're not. So I wanted to understand. I knew a little bit about where patriarchy had come from and that it wasn't an inevitability, but I wanted to understand when it became a moralizing force as well. Mm -hmm. And to me, those are the two things that are happening. There's sort of the systemic oppression, but then somehow it was paired with this idea of goodness for women, power for men. And that's what I think is so deep in us. Like we can, we can see the systemic parts of it and reject them, but it is in us in a way that was invisible to me, but felt. And that's what I wanted to really understand all this programming. Where did it come from and what is it? And that's where I landed at the sins. And I, as I went through them, I was, I had sort of this my stomach dropped sloth, pride, envy, greed, gluttony, lust, anger. And I looked at them and had this, oh my God, this is everything that every woman is trying not to be. And men are not policing themselves about these qualities at all. It's women. And not only are we policing ourselves, but then we police each other. We're upholding this mm-hmm. in culture and uh how do we how do we get out of this really because i know we want a different a different future 
So it begs the question, the seven deadly sins created and crafted by men. Yeah. But they're the not, was it, was the intention that this is going to be for the women to follow or did it just yeah. end up being that way? Cause we live in a patriarchal world. Well, this is what the history of, of them is fascinating. And I get into this in a little bit of detail. Um, it's probably the densest chapter in the book, but it's important for people who really want to understand what happened. So the sins came out of the desert and in the fourth century, this monk named Evagrius Ponticus and he's also credited, which is interesting concerning the topic of your book, fear. He created, he's one of the people credited with the Enneagram and fear is one of the points on the Enneagram. And people will then, you know, the Enneagram will be like, oh, right. The sins are the Enneagram. So he wrote them down. Um, he would create these little chat books of scripture to circulate amongst other monks and um, there were eight thoughts, demonic thoughts, but not demon, not meaning what we think of it today, but actually sort of a distracting thought, something that pulls you out of prayer. They're very human impulses. And so he wrote them down in a book. It circulated. Um, this is at the same time that the new canon was being codified. This is around the mid 300s. And um, in 590, so hundreds of years later, so for people who don't know, Mary Magdalene, we probably think of her today most likely as a penitent prostitute. If you don't really know her history, she is described in the New Testament as the one from whom Jesus cast seven demons. So he exercised her. Some people think he was clearing her chakras, whatever you want to say. She's the most sanctified person in the Bible, theoretically, but that's not how she's been read. So in 590, Pope Gregory the first took the eight thoughts, and he turned them in to seven cardinal vices. And in the same homily, he assigned them all to Mary Magdalene, the one from whom Jesus had cast seven demons. And he turned her into the same woman who anointed Jesus's hair in the Bible. That, that wasn't Mary Magdalene, but he turned Mary Magdalene into that woman and also turned that woman into a prostitute. This all happened. He must one... have hated his mother a lot. Like he really <laughs> didn't like his mom. Yes. So in one blow, they became cardinal vices and were assigned to Mary Magdalene. And Mary Magdalene, that's a whole nother story, but she's an incredible figure. She was the one, she's the first apostle. It was given to Peter, but she's the one who actually was his best student. And she was stripped literally um, of that honor and turn into a penitent prostitute. And then she was restored only in recent decades, like in 2016, the Pope <laughs> turned her into the apostle to the apostles. Oh my gosh. Only like yeah. centuries and centuries later. Yeah. This book was such an education for me. I mean, I, I think we always go around talking about or thinking, you know, we express seven deadly sins, but we, do we actually know all of them? And Right. I did know the I did know greed was in the in the mix, and I would love to focus on that for the remainder of our call and and um, talk about the revelations that greed and its association with. Let's just start with it with its greed and and how women have been sort of interpreting greed versus men. I will start with a quick story about power, um, which we often um, say in the same context with, we talk about in the same context as, as like greed, you know, wanting too much power, being greedy. Um, when I was 
in the midst of my financial journey. And I, I had a little bit of a, a trip up in my own mind about um, how much money was enough for me. And mm-hmm. it was dictated by this idea of greed. I didn't want to be perceived as being too greedy. And when I spoke with a, a money coach about it, she said, well, don't you want more power? And I said, absolutely not. <laughs> Ew, who wants power? I'm yeah. a good person. And she said, okay, let's just have a quick lesson here. Power, you're interpreting this as you know the power to take over this patriarchal power of dominance, which is how we've often been um, how that's been introduced to us. But let me cast a different picture of, of power, which is the power to help, to, the power to support. It's not a bad definition um, unless you're, it's like the power to control someone, which is what I thought, which is what I thought I was going to be perceived as, as someone who's powerful and therefore all these bad things. So I got over that and it was a breakthrough because it allowed me to go for those bigger paydays with more of a desire with more confidence and with less fear. And I wonder if this captures a little bit of what you discovered as you explored this this word greed and how it has infiltrated our minds as women. Yeah, a thousand percent. I mean, you just said it. I don't want power. I want to be good. And I'm a good person. And I think for a lot of women, not only are we conditioned to believe that money isn't really for us? It's dirty, depraved. And to be fair, I think we recognize the cost, right? Of runaway power and greed in the hands of men. And that's not something that we necessarily want to emulate. And yet, and so we, I think, resist and are you know, the, the, there's the pay gap, which we know very well. There's also the wealth gap, which is staggering that that's a real dagger to the heart. It's like 32 cents to a dollar because as we know, money compounds. And so women, this, the cost of women shying away from money and seeing it as sort of this scarce resource rather than something that's endlessly expanding and going up and to the right. And, and, and what's in, what I want to say about the book in general is that what I'm suggesting is balance, not like, let's be greedy, gluttonous, lustful, mm-hmm. et cetera. But it is moving out of this instinct to self-restrict and going towards the middle and finding our relationship to enoughness, to meeting our needs, to meeting some of our wants, Right. So it's not saying let's behave like men have behaved. It is let's, because it's hard, particularly in a culture where we have ecological credit card debt to say like women should just behave like men. No, that is not what I'm saying. Men need to behave more like women. They need to let their feminine come up in the same way that women let their masculine come up regardless of gender. So But the thing about women and money is what you were alluding to is that we are really good with it and we need more of it. Mm -hmm. We are, I'm sure you know this way better than I do, but better investors, we trade less, we're less fueled by testosterone. We're far more generous and philanthropic. We are just by far and away better stewards of money. And that reframe that you were talking about has been my reframe as well. And maybe it's a cop out, but it is, 
I want more money. I'm going to allow myself to own this wanting. And so much of the book is about actually letting our wants come up because we've been denied in this culture of selflessness that's required of women to subjugate all of our wants to other people's needs, but letting them come up in part because I want to be able to give money away. I want to support causes I care about. I want to be generous and I want to be generous to myself and my family, but it's not about hoarding. It's not about taking, 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 taking. It's about being reciprocal and in flow and moving, letting the energy, the current of money come into my life so that I can move it out. Mm. I thought it was really interesting when you talked about spending in the chapter and consumerism and how, again, this more for, for more women than men, probably what drives us to spend is this feeling of like, Again, you know, I want to be a good person. I want to support the economy. I thought that was an interesting relationship. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because that affected you as well as somebody who worked at Lucky Magazine, a shopping magazine. Yeah. You loved to spend. And when you got to the root of it, you realized that, you know, maybe it did go back to some of these ingrained biases. Well, that was my form of hoarding. And I think a lot of women can relate to this, this compulsion to buy things that we don't need and might not even want, but this like constant accumulation and this really annoying programming of household CEO and, um, you know, women supporting the economy. And I became very aware of this after 9-11 when, and I write about this in the book, and this is Lynn Twist's insight too, which... As she was writing, I was like, oh, my God, yes, that's exactly what happened to me, which is 9-11 happened. There was a tremendous amount of grief and the country coming together and donating blood. And then the calls became um, and the economy, like show your patriotism by going to the mall, literally. And this is a refrain now, right? This was the refrain of COVID. It is our responsibility to stoke this economy and keep it going. Otherwise we'll all suffer and die. And so women are extolled to spend, not extolled to make, but to spend and to be the drivers of this economy as household CEOs An economy, the etymology is house. Um, And And so part of this is resisting this sort of easy, this having it come in and then spending it on a handbag. I mean, people should do what they want, no judgment, but I had to recognize that in myself. And as a woman who worked at Lucky Magazine, needed to feel, felt this pressure to be on trend. This is right at the rise of fast fashion and everything was just insanely cheap. And I was making no money, but I was sure spending it like on a lot of stuff. And I was measuring sort of my value by the depth of my closet and feeling like I always had something exciting and interesting to wear. And it just, there was such a disconnect for me as I think that there was for, for all of us, that this was not ecologically acceptable and that nobody wanted my stuff. That's the other thing is I was like, oh, well, I'll... I'll buy stuff and then I'll donate it and it will have a second life and third life. And I think now we're like, oh no, this is sitting in barges in the ocean. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants this. Nobody wants this. You talked about 
your sense of self-worth being a derivative of the your possessions. How does our sense of self-worth show up at work? You talk about this relationship between self-worth and value, and that mm-hmm. can really muck us up as we are trying to earn, be on equal footing with our male colleagues. Why should we disconnect worth from value? Yeah. I mean, I think that one has a sort of market, a market rate, and the other is ineffable and something we know this time with people we love letters memories these are priceless right there's no there's no value to assign to them and then when we get into a situation at work it can feel so degrading to say this is what my this is what i'm worth and We conflate the two and the two need to be kept separate. One being sacred, one just being a function of market forces. And we can't internalize that as our essential value. Um, and, And I think that it allows us to sort of preserve our sense of self without taking what we get paid as a measure as an internal measure, if that makes sense. Um, And recognizing how totally messed up our culture is where we don't take care of the people who care for us. We don't take care of these most essential functions. And we talked about this a lot in COVID, essential workers, essential workers. And yet the essential workers are the ones who have the least amount of external value. And... Mm -hmm. That's that's a perfect way to illustrate the disconnect and how important it is to distinguish them and then fix the uh, the latter. Like we have to, as a culture, and again, I mentioned sort of these qualities of masculine and feminine, and and it sounds more woo woo than it is. But I think anyone, particularly anyone who's watching the contemporary trans movement, well, is starting to understand this. There are qualities that are feminine. These are nurturance, care, creativity. There are qualities that are masculine, order, structure, truth. And it has been our instinct to assign masculine qualities, which are balanced. These can get toxic as we know, um, or underexpressed, but to assign those to men and to assign the qualities of the feminine to women. They don't belong to a gender. We have eat, we we all have all of these energies in us and they need to be balanced in all of us, regardless of our sexuality and regardless of our stated gender. I think women, people in female bodies, anyone who identifies as female understands this well, that they, I think women are really good at both energies, even though we sort of pretend like we don't have those qualities of the masculine men need to let the qualities of the feminine come up in them desperately. Like that's what's required. Um, and part of it is care is of, uh, caring, nurturing, loving is like an essential part of being human. Mm -hmm. It is Mm -hmm. not, And so we devalue the feminine. We devalue all of these uh, functions of care and they have to be both venerated and allowed to express. And then I think in turn, theoretically, 
let's just hope that it would revalue the way that we monetize or think about what we're what's worth paying for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was thinking about that expression we often throw around, money doesn't buy happiness. Yeah. Forget the fact that scientists have disproved this, but <clears throat> I wonder if whoever said that first clearly had a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Didn't know what it was like to live paycheck to paycheck, didn't know what it was like to be living below poverty levels and probably therefore a man. <laughs> uh, yeah. So can we also maybe say that this is a patriarchal expression that money doesn't buy happiness because it does ultimately keep people and particularly marginalized communities, women feeling satisfactory about the fact that they don't make more. Yeah. And it's, it's really like the, the research on this is so important because as you said, there is a certain standard of living, which I wish we lived in a culture that would establish a universal basic income and get people to this baseline. There's a standard that, and, and you need more money if you have children, obviously, where anything less and you suffer greatly. We know this, right? People suffer. It's like 95,000, it's like 65,000 for an, and obviously this is entirely dependent on where you live in the country right. um, or 95,000. Um, and then I think the research suggests that after a certain point, an escalation of wealth does nothing for you. And I think this is, this becomes like the massive note in culture, right? Being really, we know this being really rich doesn't make you happy. A lot of really, really rich people are really unhappy, right? That's very different than saying, oh, you know, the virtuosity that we then ascribe to poverty or living paycheck to paycheck, that scarcity mindset, which is very real, like reduces IQ. I mean, it just ruins your life when you're Mm -hmm. scrambling. There's no joy. There's no space. There's no, no room in that style of living. It is incredibly traumatic. So yes, you know, having a billion dollars isn't going to make you happier than having $2 million or whatever it is, mm-hmm. but theoretically, but, um, or it doesn't insulate you from life, but, right. um, getting people to a point where they can provide and meet their needs. I think we're in a, we're in a different ball game in terms of happiness for mm-hmm. sure. And we have a cruel society that has no social net, only corporate welfare. But no, we don't care at all about people's basic needs. It's really inhumane. So, Elise, you started earlier talking about Mary Magdalene and how it took until 2016 for her to be properly recognized by the Pope. What's your read on how long it's going to take for us to release ourselves from these sins as a guidebook, as sort of the, the model for, li- for living a quote unquote good life and being a good person? Yeah. So as mentioned, I think that there's the two parts, the psychology and the systems. And I think that the systems will evolve and fall as soon as we address the psychology of it. And, um, and part of that, a big part of that is supporting each other, women supporting other women as we start to break this down and establish a new status quo. So that means, you know, the chapter on envy is all about this, which is, an argument that our undiagnosed envy, because we're so not used to identifying what we want when we mm-hmm. see another woman 
behave, stepping into her wanting or behaving in a way that we would never allow ourselves to behave, our immediate instinct is to swat her down and police her. And this is why in the social science literature, you see women being as hard, if not harder on other women than men are hard on women. So a big part of this is just identifying that in ourselves. I think if we can do that and start to, to support each other as we knock down this programming and tell a different story, it could be fast. And this is why women have been outperforming men in school for a century. Um, I don't really know any lazy women, to be honest. Most of the women I know are incredibly hardworking in the home and outside of it. I think our work ethic is unparalleled. I also, I feel like women are as an oppressed part of the culture. I'm sure many women don't feel oppressed, but we live in a patriarchy, so it's present. I think we have a much better insight into what needs to change in order to rebalance culture. I don't see a lot of women causing a lot of harm. There are some, certainly, but um, it's primarily men. So the re- I think as soon as we can address the psychological burden of this and put it down and get behind each other, change is fast. Watch out. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I say like women are, we are like boxers training at high altitude. And I think if we can get behind each other and behind ourselves, watch out. Well, watch out and watch out for your book. It's it's going to help definitely along that journey and more than help. I mean, this book, uh, I want to read it again, too, because first of all, at least you're a writer's writer. Your writing is so beautiful, so sharp. You talk about, you know, your own life, like you really take us there. It's deeply researched. It's just a combination of so many important things you want in a book. And not only that, the message is so, so critical and what we need to hear right now. So thank you for taking the time to write this. I know I can only imagine the journey and um, I hope you're celebrating because this is a celebratory book. It's a moment. Thank you. I so appreciate it. And I can't wait for yours because as mentioned, fear, that's the, that's what I didn't address. So your book is, is a companion piece. Well, I'm honored. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much to Elise Lonin for joining us. Her book again is called On Our Best Behavior. I'll see you back here on Wednesday. In the meantime, I hope your day is so money. 